1: we've all had different relationships with experimenting with drugs and some people go from experiment. I mean, everybody's got a different reason why they do what they do. I mean, there's a reason why people, there's a million reasons why I guess people become alcoholics. Everybody's got with you, it was a void you were trying to fill. Who knows? Everybody's got a different reason. Usually it ties back to trauma or, or not feeling worthy or not feeling loved or whatever that is. You know, those are those are things that I think are common amongst addicts. This
2: is the knocking doors down podcast featuring celebrities, experts and everyday people who have overcome adversities, including addiction, mental health and trauma to live purposeful lives. And that's what knocking doors down is all about. This is Knocking Doors Down, your host Jason here. Thank you guys for listening, or if it's YouTube, you're watching. Either way, please hit that subscribe button and share with someone else that will get value out of the podcast. I've been seeing some nice numbers here in the new year, and I appreciate it so very much as I continue to try to get out these stories of hope and inspiration and perseverance to as many people as possible, so it really means a lot. And uh, speaking to my guest on this episode means more than you know. I've been trying to speak to Mr. Eric Bischoff, for it's about two and a half years now. So it was great to finally talk with Eric. Timing lined up perfectly. His new book, Grateful, is out. I am waiting for my autographed copy. Of course, a book he did with a gentleman named Guy Evans. We dig into why he worked with Guy, and it has to do with trust. Also, Eric opens up in a way that I've not personally heard on uh, any interviews or recordings. Uh, He talks about his substance use. He talks about the loss of friends due to addiction. He also opens up about now and at this point in his life, he's exploring spirituality more than he ever had. So it's very insightful. He also digs into some of the childhood traumas he faced, which surround his uh, father's health conditions and just growing up in the time that he did being bullied on the way home from school and how that affected him and how he approached life moving forward to overcome that. So again, thank you to Eric Bischoff. This is a really great one. Get his book, Grateful. I put the link in the podcast description to do so. And as well, if you're like me, a big professional wrestling fan, well, then uh, you can also click that link to listen to his podcasts 83 Weeks, Strictly Business, and go into ad-free shows and the whole ad-free shows family. All I can say is you guys are going to enjoy this one. And it was really neat to kind of go through Eric's life and see how he developed his sense of purpose. Speaking of purpose, how about a lifestyle brand with purpose? 5150 LTM, that's right, not only is it a lifestyle brand that can fit whatever it is you're trying to achieve in life, but they give back to the community. Right now I am wearing my new 5150 hat, warm leather jacket, as well I got my new 5150 joggers on that I like to wear around the winter time. And you, the listener of Knockin' Doors Down, get 20% off every time you shop at 5150LTM. All you have to do is use the code KDD20 at checkout and get 20% off. And of course, I said it helps within the community. And how does 5150 give back to the community? Portions of the sales benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation. There are three amazing programs. The Race to End the Stigma, which focuses on mental health, The Race for Autism, helping families in the community who have children that have special needs and are on the autism spectrum scale. And the Race to be Drug Free, providing free after-school athletic programs to the youth within our community, keeping them off the streets, away from gangs and drugs. More on the Carlos Vieira Foundation. Go to carlosvieirafoundation.org. Mr. Eric Bischoff, thank you for joining me on Knocking Doors Down happy to be here, man. Eric, uh, Hosted 83 Weeks, uh, Strictly Business. You can get all those at shows. We'll dig into that more a little bit later on, but your latest book, Grateful, just came out. What a poignant title to kind of pick up after Controversy uh, Creates Cash.
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot's gone down since 2006, I think is when Controversy Creates Cash came out, 2006 or 2007. So, yeah, man, it's been a uh, it's been a fun sixteen years, interesting sixteen years. Lots of it has been fun, but some <laughs> yeah. of it's just been more on the interesting side.
2: <laughs> you know, I'm an avid listener of eighty three weeks. I think the only episode I've never completed was the Scott Hall episode, and I'll go into that a little bit later on. Um, but you're working with Guy Evans on this book. Uh, of course, <laughs> was the writer of the Nitro book, one that sticks to fact why was that so important to this relationship for you? You know, you, you do talk on 83 weeks about trust and
1: well, I mean, you, you, you said it, man. it it's trust. And I think anytime you're going to sit down and share, I don't want to say intimate details because there's nothing intimate about it, I guess in the typical use of the word intimate, but um, you're sharing. I was sharing, um, thoughts that had nothing to do with the business, the wrestling business, or, you know, my experiences in the wrestling business or stories from the road or any of the typical things that people like me who've spent a couple of minutes in the wrestling industry talk about. This was more about what was inside of my head and what was inside of my heart. And that's a different conversation. And I wouldn't sit down and share those kinds of details or experiences with people that I didn't necessarily feel comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And in order for me to feel comfortable with somebody, I have to have a certain level of trust. Guy Evans, you know, I didn't know Guy at all before he wrote the book, you know, the Nitro book. And I, you know, I interviewed with him for that book, which is something I don't normally do with people. I don't know. Uh, Because you never know how much integrity a writer has or what their agenda is, particularly when people are writing or talking about wrestling because it's such a passionate, subjective universe that people tend to take little bits of information and they spin it and turn it and use it to kind of create or support their own narratives or agenda. But when I read Guy's book... I was so impressed with his integrity, and that integrity was reflected in his research and the effort that he put into that book. Guy did over 120 interviews with with people, some of whom I've never even met, people that were above me on the corporate food chain, so to speak, but these people had a definite, many of them had a lot more influence over what ultimately happened to wcw than i did right. internally corporately yeah
2: there's so much about it out there that that the downfall of wcw and these things that, so much of it ends up a, a, attacks at you and it, how do you just kind of just deal with it I, I you know i'm at a point eric in my recovery that it's like year two. Everybody said a lot of the shit's going to hit the fan for you, and it is. How do you just kind of navigate a lot of this stuff where it's just a bunch of fodder?
1: Uh, you, you know, it's taking time. You know, keep in mind, I I I was active in the industry for thirty plus years, I guess, and during that period of time, I took a lot of heat. You know. Um, <laughs> It started out with, why the hell does this guy get this job? You know, going back to the AWA when I ended up on camera, you know, a lot of the, the, the wrestling talent there at that point in time, they didn't really have anything against me, but it was like, who is this new kid that's never spent a nickel or never spent a minute in the wrestling business, has never drawn a nickel, doesn't even know how to lace up a pair of wrestling boots, you know? You know how is this kid? He doesn't know anybody. He didn't come up in the business. His family wasn't in the business. You know this this Eric Bischoff character just came came from out of nowhere and ended up hosting a show on ESPN five days a week. How does that? Have, you know and there was a resentment about that.
2: Yeah,
1: because I didn't come from. I had no experience, and I understand that. I didn't take that personally. It's going kind of comes with the territory. But as things progressed over time and then I made it to WCW and kind of the same thing, you know, people kind of recognized I had a little bit more experience by that point, but it was still, I was the outsider. You know, I didn't come up in the wrestling business. I didn't come into the business the way most people did. And as a result, I think inherently there was just a fair amount of, I don't want to call it natural resentment or jealousy, but it was there. And then Eventually it became, you know, the dirt sheet writers and the rag sheets and people like Dave Meltzer and all, they had their own opinion and their narrative. And then that began to grow as my profile began to grow. So did the narrative from others. And to top it all off, I, you know, I became the president of a division of Turner Broadcasting. By the way, I had no corporate experience prior to that. I was a talent, but here I am president of... A division of Turner Broadcasting that really created some <laughs> resentment internally by people you know in in the company that kind of felt that they deserved that sure. and then of course they would leak things to people like Dave Meltzer. and you know they had their own agenda and reasons for doing it and it just grew and grew and grew but the, and it it, and it bothered me a lot to be yeah. honest with you uh early on and when I say bothered me like I didn't go home and you know whine about it or complain to my wife about it or you know, sit and be miserable about it. My nature is to fight back. I, I, I'll come back at you. I'll counterpunch. I, I was. My nature is to fight first, and then start thinking about things later. <laughs> <laughs> That's got me in trouble a few times. <laughs> and and here's how that worked out for me, though, by fighting back and calling out certain people, and I've been doing it for a long time. I did it long before social media you know, became a thing. Um, those people, those individuals who had their own agenda and their own feelings about me, rather than sitting back and shutting up, what did they do? They did what most people would do, is they started coming on even stronger. So, I developed this um, love-hate about the love relationship these dirt sheet writers and it just continued to escalate and throughout my career, no matter what move I made, you know, you always had a group of people like the Dave Meltzer's and the, you know, the amoeba that follow him, or I should say not follow him, but believe him. Right. Um, And and not just Dave, others um, just kind of camped out of that camp. But, you know, I got to the point where um, it it, it stopped bothering me and I started having fun with it. Like yeah. now I have fun with it. You know, I I purposely will sometimes post things on Twitter that I know will, you know, irritate the the dirt sheet community, and I just I do it just for fun. I just like fucking with
3: them,
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and and to a degree because because when they do that stuff, they expose themselves. For what little they really know about the industry, and they expose themselves as just being you know fanatical anti Eric Bischoff wrestling dirt sheet readers
0: the knocking doors down book shares all the history and inspiration behind the carlos vera foundation and how it all started all proceeds from the book benefit the carlos Vieira foundation's race to be drug-free campaign so what's that all about through the race to be drug-free campaign carlos Viera foundation raises awareness about drug abuse donates to drug-free programs and brings drug-free speakers into schools to educate youth The Race to Be Drug-Free campaign's main program is the Gloves Not Drugs Boxing Program. This program is completely free for kids between the ages of 8 and 17 to learn discipline, strength, respect, camaraderie, and the art of boxing. The program was created to keep kids off the streets, out of gangs, and away from drugs. For more info and to get involved, check out carlosvierafoundation.org.
2: That's one of the things I love, and, and no offense to anybody else on the Ad Free Show's team, uh, you know, your shows are the ones I listen to the most. A, I love hearing about, you know, the business of, and it's really interesting you come from that, but also just your approach with life. And one of the really intriguing things to me was when you, you've you talked a lot about, you know, you're, you're growing up and I see where that, you know, I'm like, where does a personality like what I know of you publicly and through mutual friends d- develop and you talk about the tough streets of Detroit growing up in Minnesota and, and, and home life. How do you kind of reflect back on those, those experiences? Is there ever a time maybe you're sitting there journaling and go, wow. Okay. This reminds me when I was younger and, you know, getting beat up as a kid in Detroit or whatever it was. And and this is the period I decided I was going to stop taking
1: shit. Oh, I mean, you know, that, First of all, when I, when I think about my childhood and growing up in Detroit and I didn't grow up in the roughest part of Detroit, and I want to make right. that clear, you know, where I grew up in Detroit, it was probably rougher than your average suburban, you know, community, um, because it was Detroit and it, it was different. You know, I did get beat up essentially three times a day, five days a week. Now I was a scrawny kid, um, and the older kids in the neighborhood typically picked on the younger scrawny kids and I was among several of those I wasn't the only one but it's just the way it was and to be honest with you I didn't I just thought that's the way life was I didn't have anything to compare it to to me it was that's that's how everybody lives I'm sure this same thing I didn't think this you know but I I it I guess at the time I thought everybody went through what I went through and that was the way life was everywhere because i didn't yeah. have anything to compare it to and when i left detroit you know i was a kid 13 14 years old whatever it was i moved to pittsburgh and i remember you know i was a new kid you know nobody knew who me was i was still that scrawny kid you know nothing changed and i remember i was i was on a bus i never ridden a bus before because in detroit i walked to school we lived close enough to school i could walk and I'm on this bus, and this kid by the name of Kenny stockline, is his name he was like the he was the tough guy, you know he was the athlete, he was the star quarterback or whatever he was in the football team, and he was the alpha right in eighth grade or seventh grade or whatever it was, probably eighth grade, ninth grade and I remember he was sitting behind me one day on a school bus and we we got dropped off at the same bus stop and we had shop class back then, metal shop. And this, Kenny had made a garden trowel on a sheet metal. That was his his class project. And he was bringing it home, I guess. And he was sitting behind me on the bus on the way home. And just to get laughs, I guess, he was binging me on the back of the head. Just ding, not hard. Just ding, ding. And everybody behind me would break out laughing. of course, a uh, new kid sitting by himself in front of the bus, getting picked on by the, you know. School bully, but everybody liked him. He was a very popular kid. And, you know, I was here six, seven, eight times. I'm getting banged on the back of the head. And I remember thinking, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. I just, I don't. I moved away from it. And I really had hoped that things would be different. And they kind of weren't. I lived in a nicer area. You know, my parents upgraded, they moved to a nicer neighborhood, a nicer house, better school. But here I was again, <laughs> getting, getting banged on the back of the head with a garden trowel by Kenny Stockline. I remember somewhere along the way, I, I said, yeah, I just don't want to do this anymore. And I waited till the, till the bus stopped at our bus stop. So I had planned this in my head. I just sat there and I, I let them hit me and I let everybody laugh. Not hit me, but, you know, try to irritate me. And everybody's laughing and I didn't do a thing. I didn't even turn around and look at them. Didn't do anything, didn't sell it. I didn't know what selling was back then. but I knew I had one shot because he was <laughs> hey, a bigger-
2: Eric, a lot of wrestlers now don't either.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew I knew look, he was a bigger, stronger, you know, tougher kid than me. Um and I knew okay, I got one shot at this. Because here's the here's the good news for me at that time. Having fought three times a day. Generally, I got beat up on my way to school. I got beat up at lunchtime when they took my lunch money. And then I'd usually get beat up at least once on the way home, right? Most days, not every day, but most days, same pattern. But you kind of learn a little bit about street fighting and even at a young age. So as this cat's banging me on the back of the head, I'm going, okay, here's what's, here's how this is going to happen, Eric. You only got one shot. if you don't take care of this in the first shot, you're going to get your butt kicked. So I just waited and waited and waited. And when we came to our bus stop, I waited until I could sense, you know, maybe I was cheated a little bit, looked out of the corner of my eye. And when I saw this kid, Kenny stand up behind me and he's reaching for his books or something, I just stood up as quick as I could and turned around and sucker punched him. And Then there was a big, you know, the bus driver, because I was really at the front of the bus. and The bus driver got involved and threw us off the bus and all that. And then there was a big pull apart. Anyway, fast fast forward. Kenny called me out. He said, all right, Alcoma Golf Course. And Alcoma Golf Course was a golf course that was right across the street from our bus stop. So he called me out. Well, that was the big news all day long. There's going to be a fight after school. Kenny Stockline, you know, school tough guy. He's going to beat up the new kid. And I, it's just no big deal. I've been beat up so many times. Being getting my ass kicked was has never been a concern for me because it's happened so often. I've gotten used to it at that point. And I showed up, and I thought, nah, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna fight ugly. I'm not gonna stand here and try to box and do what kids usually do, try to, you know, show off. I just went at him, you know, and dropped him. I don't, th- I, you know, I didn't hit him. I didn't drop him with a punch. Somehow we were wrestling around. He went down on all fours. And when he went down on all fours, before he got up, I stood back and I just football punched him right in the ribs. And that was that. That was the end of that fight. And from that day forward, I never got picked on again. Mm-hmm. Nobody thought of me as a tough guy because I was still the scrawny kid, but I was the scrawny kid from Detroit that beat the hell up <laughs> <laughs> and embarrassed, you know, the tough guy. And I think that moment kind of is what made me go, huh, okay it's better to fight back than it is just to take people's shit. Yeah. And that's probably one of the more formative moments in my young life that has carried over. I still feel that way. I still react. You know, I, I don't take a lot of shit from people, even from people I like, <laughs> I <don't. laughs> right. but, but I've calmed down quite a bit.
2: Yeah. I, I, I'm guessing that, uh, 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 Lori, Mrs. Bischoff helps with that a little bit because, like, before we started recording, one of the things that I really take away from 83 weeks when you talk about her, and I had this conversation with, um, Holly Saunders on here, her boyfriend's Oscar de la Hoya, and she, she talked about, you know, a relationship, you can have someone and it'll fuck up your life real bad, but you get the right person and your life becomes enhanced. And I hear so much, you know, uh, I think you're having some AG1 or something right now. I know Mrs. B's into holistic uh, you know, health and all these things. I don't know if you've ever thought about doing an episode of 83 Weeks just about her and that relationship, but there's such a beautiful interweaving of having a partner that's stood by your side
1: through so much. Yeah, I don't think we've ever done a full episode, but Lori has certainly you know, done various podcasts and been a guest and she has her own podcasts and we've done things together on her podcast. I'm not sure my wrestling, my audience for 83 weeks, because most of them are there to kind of revisit the nostalgia, you know, the Monday night sure. wars and all that. Um, I'm not sure they want to hear much about relationship issues in general, maybe a little bit here and there, but look, you know, there's no question. Lori and I have grown up together. You know, uh, when I met Lori, she was 21 years old, you know, um, She's been with me the majority of her life at this point. And things have evolved. You know, it wasn't like the minute, you know, Lori and I got together, it was this magical, you know, moment and transformation and evolution mm-hmm. of things. That wasn't it at oh, all, man. We were kids. She was a kid basically. I was six years older and still a kid, because I think men generally mature at a rate about eight or ten years behind women. So, although she was only 21 and I was 27, we were essentially about the same age, yeah. <laughs> emotionally,
3: <laughs> <and> <laughs> wise.
1: You know, you know, we went through, you know, yeah. we, there was a lot of things that we did that were, you know, uncharacteristic of our lifestyle now, um, yeah. because it just happens as you get older. You know, you get older, you have kids, your values change, you're, you, you mature, you learn by experience, And you start eliminating some of the bad habits or bad choices, or you know, parts of your lifestyle that aren't necessarily productive, and you start focusing more on the things that are going to make you happy. Now, with Lori, she really kind of dove headfirst into nutrition and her spirituality. Um, probably. In the early to mid 90s is when it really started to become her primary focus outside of, you know, taking care of the family and the kids. And that her intensity for that only grew over time. And it slowly, and I want to really emphasize slowly, started to affect me, you know, and it, her. Her interest in nutrition. I, I've always had a strong interest in nutrition. I think, in fact, I think she'll tell you one of the things that kicked off Lori's interest in nutrition was a book that I gave her called "Sugar Blues." Hmm. And when she read that book, it's kind of it was kind of like a an eye opener for her, and it was the catalyst for her to to really dig into nutrition. And then along with that. Her spirituality. She began to really explore and and read and invest because Lori wasn't really a spiritual person when I met her. If she was, I never knew it. Hmm. Um, she was a twenty one year old, you know, average. Well, anything but average. <laughs> <to tell. laughs> but I mean, in terms of in terms of her personality and wow. the things she did and enjoyed. Um, but as that part of her life became more important to her, obviously, it became a bigger part of my life. But it's taken time, man. I mean, I'm, I'll am i be 60, 68 in May and I feel like I'm just now getting to, I don't want to say understand, but um, embrace spirituality and embrace kind of a, a bigger, I hate to use the word enlightened because it's used so much, but a bigger, broader view of the world beyond just the next opportunity I'm going to try to tackle.
2: It's funny when you talk about yours and, and, and the Mrs. Age difference, my my partner and I, she's uh, 16 years younger, and I've had people go, whoa, how does that work? I go, you got to remember, I was drunk for over a decade every day. So, you know, my emotional maturity was stunted quite a bit. So,
1: it Yeah, that has a lot work. to do with it, right? It's not like you really evolve as a human being when you're under the influence of anything. You know, no. It doesn't have to be chemicals. You can be under the influence of any kind of lifestyle that doesn't even necessarily involve alcohol or drugs but if you're obsessed with things to the point where or or you allow things whatever it may be to control you to the point where you're not exploring your spirituality and and a a bigger view of the world then yeah you kind of stunt it it's Mm -hmm. like no growth
2: Oh, yeah. No, there was none whatsoever. Uh, I was a shit show, to be honest. But, uh, you know, um, I mean, but you've seen it. I mean, you know, our connection here, this is the irony, too, of of being an avid listener of your show. I learned about Tim Ryan, dope man, the, the work you did with Jason Hervey because of 83 Weeks. Now, two years, almost two years, Tim and I have been friends. What did doing that show um really kind of change your perception uh, of addiction? I mean, cuz you were around it's, you know, I mean Scott Hall, one of my all-time favorite wrestling performers, you know. Um and how did how did really going through that did did, did your mindset concerning addiction maybe change? I'll
1: be honest, the show had nothing to do with it. I mm. I, I was I was airily involved. I was involved on the business side of that show. My business partner, Jason Hervey was working directly with Tim throughout that whole process. I, I never even stepped on the set um, because I was busy producing other things. And that was Jason's project. I didn't really get to know Tim until after that project was over mm. and aired on A&E and a certain amount of time went by. And one day Tim Ryan reached out to me and said, Hey, you know, by the, by, that time, Jason and I, and Jason Hervey and I had dissolved our production company, you know, amicably, you know, we're still friends, but he kind of went his way and I went my way. And then uh, Tim called me one day and said, hey, you know, I'd really like to get this show going. I know, you know, it had a special on AE, but I think it could be a series. So I started working closely with Tim on that, but it wasn't, the show didn't have any impact on me, to be honest uh because i already had a pretty strong opinion about addiction and because of working with guys like scott hall but he was only one all right you know if, if i look back i don't even like to think about it the number of people that i worked with peers guys a lot younger than me that i worked with and had different levels of relationships with that all died because of drugs. I saw it. I saw what alcohol did to people. I've been around people for the better part of 30 years that, you know, you sit down with them and shoot the shit and everything's great. And they are fun people and they're fun to be around. You go out and you have a drink with them. And for the first two or three drinks, they're a good time. And everybody's laughing by drink number four, they turn into mean people. They, they get bitter and angry and mean. And I've, I've been around people on, I'm not exaggerating. I've been around people that went from Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde over the course of three beers. And it, when you see that happen in front of you, and you go, what the hell? You know, it doesn't take a very intelligent person at all to re- realize that, man, some people shouldn't drink. Yeah. And obviously people shouldn't, you know, I watched guys, Louis Piccoli, young guy, Russell, you know, for WCW, you know, pass away. Ray Trailer, another good friend of mine, you know, took my son deer hunting. My son got his very first deer with Ray Trailer and Rick Steiner. You know, Ray Trailer passed away because he was drinking and doing somas. Yeah. You know, a muscle relaxer. It was a bad combination. And that, that combination of alcohol and prescription drugs has probably killed more of my friends than anything. And I was well aware of that. Now, what I wasn't aware of until after getting to know Tim was the extent of the opioid crisis and, and how heroin heroin made its resurgence. You know, when I was a teenager in the sixties and early seventies, you know, I knew what heroin was. Everybody knew what heroin was, but the people that did heroin were like the destitute, you know, bottom of the barrel homeless, you know, they were a different class of, you know, it wasn't like smoking weed and, mushrooms and having fun. These were people that were like into the the poison. Well, I realized after meeting Tim and and having conversations with Tim that heroin was no longer a junkie's disease initially. Uh, It was a blue collar disease. It was a white collar disease. There was heroin everywhere. And then I learned that one of the reasons that heroin is everywhere is because doctors, doctors in the pharmaceutical industry we're over-prescribing opioids in the form of Vicodin and Percocet and all the other goodies um, for so long. And when those drugs became no longer so easily available because the federal government finally realized that all of a sudden they shut down the, you know, supply of heroin, you know, the pain clinics that existed in Florida. I've, I've, I've seen them. you know, when they existed, you know, before Florida cracked down on pain clinics, you could literally walk in and I've done it, by the way, done it. You know, one of my favorite cocktails back in the day was what was called a starter kit. The Mm. starter kit was was a, a Vicodin of a substantial strength. I don't remember what the milligrams were anymore, but a substantially strong Vicodin Along with two mini thins, mini thins were the little caffeine stimulants you could buy over the counter at 7-Eleven. And then you mix two mini thins of Vicodin and about three or four beers and you were off for a fun ride for a while (laughs) until you weren't until you, until you started doing too much of it. And and so I, I, I know how easy it was to go in and get a prescription for, for Vicodin.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, wow, man, I sprained my elbow, doc. Can I get some Vicodin? Oh, yeah, here's 120. You know, here's a prescription of 120. Let me know if you need a refill. You go, to the de- you go to the dentist, get a tooth pull. Oh, here's 30 Vicodin. Well, I've had a whole bunch of dental work done recently, implants and all kinds of other stuff. I never took a pain pill. I mean, the last time I never even took an aspirin because you don't need it. But when doctors would just give it to you, what do most people do? Oh, fuck, I'll try it. See what that's like. But when all that shut down, and you couldn't get it anymore. That's when the heroin industry started really growing, and becoming. Yeah.
2: yeah, and you can. It's it's one of those situations of of following the money with this. I you know I work for a nonprofit called Parents and Addicts in Need, and the founder he was an opioid addict, um, and so him and Tim Ryan have hit it off really well. But it was it was that doctor shopping and everything else. He was he was fortunate enough that he was so uh, upstanding enough in the 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 city that that he lives that he didn't have to ever resort to going to the streets but it was that close i mean it was that close and it's you know i'm one of those oddballs with addiction eric i've tried a lot of different stuff uh you know cocaine i got paranoid the first time opioids made me sick thank goodness but boy i wasn't the angry drunk unless it was a situation what do you mean there's not a fifth beer that's when it would set me off as long as i kept drinking i was pretty good and and there wasn't anyone that was poking at me kind of like the 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 young man with the hoe on the back of your head um i was pretty good but boy i would definitely kill for that fifth beer and for me that was when it was even growing up in a home of addiction didn't understand it i i thought it was weakness I thought my dad was weak until I got older and went oh shit okay now I know what he means that son you need to look out cuz I've had family members on both sides die from this disease.
1: Yeah, it's a, it, it's and it's so insidious, right? It, cre- it creeps up on you. So, uh, well I'm just speaking for myself and the, my experience not only my experience individually but my experience being in the business I was in where you know prescription Drug abuse was commonplace for a long time. Um, it's It starts out kind of just fun, not going to hurt anybody else. The doctor gave it to me. It's a prescription, therefore it's okay, and you don't realize what it does to you, man. And it's like, the more I read about, and not just you know, heroin and opioids and alcohol and the other things that are out there that people have problems with but the one that scares me the most cuz i think it's even more insidious and we haven't yet begun to understand how much it's affected people for generations now is drugs like ritalin yeah. and and drugs for ADD, which I think in some respects is become a manufactured condition that's been created by a part of the medical community. You know, they create a problem, convince people they have the problem because they have a drug for it. Yeah. And you have to go to that doctor to get that drug. And when I hear about kids who are being diagnosed as, you know, attention deficit sort of go to, they're fucking kids. Yeah, right. They're fucking kids. They have the attention span of a fruit fly, (laughs) you know. And and rather than dealing with that, some kids more than others, you know, Um, rather than dealing with it, it's like, oh, let's just give them a pill because the parents are too busy to deal with it or they don't know how.
2: Yeah.
1: They've got a full time job, they've got their own pressures, they've got their own issues. And man, it's a lot easier to go to the doctor and say, oh, well, young Billy here, he's just he's got ADD, it's fairly common, just give him two of these, give him one in the morning, one at night, he'll be fine. Shit. It's it's wicked stuff, man. It's wicked stuff because it changes your, it changes, I believe, I'm not a doctor, I'm not an expert, I'm not Tim Ryan, I'm not you, but I've had my own experience with it. Individually and 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 seeing it around me, and I firmly believe that those drugs that are designed to rewire your brain and create different chemical processes in your brain also rewire your brain and make you into a different person. I've seen that. I've experienced that too.
2: It's it's it totally is messing with your neural pathways, and so you take you know you're pointing out some really great stuff. So you take. You know, brain, they say, matures around 26, so any of this stuff, and you are fucking with your neuropathways, connections that you can and should be made, especially with kids, like you're saying, with with Ritalin and things like that, and uh, let's even in- introduce, I, I mean, I, you know, I, kid of the 80s, born 78, but, you know, so pot, even take that. We're seeing now, you know, 15, 16, 17-year-olds having psychotic breaks from the high THC content. In addition to the fentanyl crisis, that's a whole other fucking story altogether, Eric. I mean, there's not even experimentation with that. You think you're getting a Xanax. You're not. You got a pill that's pure fentanyl and you're gone first time. You know, so it's it's a scary situation, you know, as a father of two teenagers and really educating them to, you know, you, you got to look out for yourself. I know you're going to be curious, but curiosity could be
0: that you're you're gone. 5150 is a lifestyle. We believe in pushing yourself, finding your passion, knowing your dreams and working hard, and always striving to make those dreams your reality. We believe life is too short to sit back and say, what if? Go after it, grab it, and make it happen. I look
1: back and I'm I'm so grateful, you know, that I, mean, I hate to say I'm grateful that I'm the age that I am because we all wish that we were younger <laughs> in some respects. But, you know, when, uh, I, when I was in my 20s and early 30s, you know, I'm not going to lie. If I was out with a couple of my friends and somebody had, you know, an eight ball or, or had a gram and it was like, oh, t- you know, take a line before we go out drinking. I'm in. I'd do that. It was fun. I didn't have any problem with that. It it was the whoa, let's go, let's go have a great time, and, and until and it's one of the things I'm grateful for because I realized after a short period of time, I don't like this stuff. I like that momentary buzz that I got. It was fun. There's no denying it. Um, it was a great feeling of euphoria and energy, um, until it wasn't. A couple hours later, and then you just feel like crap. And the next day, you feel worse. It's like okay. <laughs> I get it, but I don't want to keep getting it, you know, yeah. and for me, cocaine was an experiment, you know, but i never got never got into it yeah. in, in a serious way, mostly because I couldn't afford it <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, but but partly because I realized early on that, yeah, you get a momentary rush out of it, but you get a much longer period of feeling like crap, yeah and I never like feeling like crap, I always like feeling good, yeah
2: well, I, you know and I think it goes back to. Being a de- determined individual, you know, I, 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 that's kind of a thread I've taken throughout, you know, and following your career, of course, you know, at one time when I was going to school for film and television, my dream was not to be a commentator for WWE, but WCW. Well, prior to the year 2000, <laughs> let's be honest. Uh, but, you know, I, I've just seen this determination, whereas for me growing up in a home of addiction, very disjointed relationship from my dad, some abuse there. Um, or I was like five or six being exposed to hardcore pornography. Granted, now that he's sober, beautiful person, different relationship altogether. I was always looking for something kind of filling a void. And that's the thing I've noticed between people just such as yourself. I went out. You know, had fun. It was a good time with the buddies. For me, it was always looking to fill something that wasn't there, and the delusion in my own mind that, especially, you know, four or five beers in, I could talk to any woman in the bar. Everybody wanted to hang out with me. You know, I'm the local radio celeb, and what other bullshit. So it's it's interesting how, for the non addicts, so to speak, there is some different language in, in their reflection upon any experimentation.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm, uh, I guess there is, we all have, we, we've all had different relationships with experimenting with drugs and some people go from experiment. I mean, everybody's got a different reason why they do what they do. I mean, there's a reason why people, there's a million reasons why I guess yeah. people become alcoholics. Everybody's got with you, it was a void you were trying to fill. Who knows? Everybody's got a different reason. Usually it ties back to trauma or or not feeling worthy or not feeling loved or whatever that is. You know, those are those are things that I think are common amongst addicts. I don't know. I'm not in the nope. community. I nailed I it. I don't counsel people. I but I read and I talk to people. <laughs> you know, I listen. <laughs> And it seems like that's like the common denominator, man. Just not feeling love, not feeling important, uh, or in some cases, even more severe trauma, abuse of one form or another. Yeah.
2: Well, it, it, we, uh, or I, exchanged with you, is it, it sharing that my my dad, unfortunately, he had an accident. I think it's five years ago now, um, quadriplegic. But you went through some of that stuff too with your your father with some health issues. Did that. For me, it's motivated me to change my life to get better, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, in all ways. Did it have an impact on you? Maybe in reflection, the things that
1: were going on with your dad to kind of. Well, fill in the blanks for people that don't know. Um, my dad, my when I I think I was about four or five years old. So this must have been about 1960. I remember, the morning. I remember, yeah, it was around 1960 because I was looking at my mom and dad leaving the driveway of our home in Detroit, and they got into our 59 Ford Fairlane. I remember it. It was beige and white with a green interior. It was the ugliest fucking car the <laughs> <laughs> But I remember being about five years old and sitting up on the couch and looking out the picture window, the main window in our home, and watching my mom and dad drive off as my mom was taking my father to the hospital. For, for brain surgery. And my dad was born premature. Believe it or not, he was born in nineteen thirty, but even in nineteen thirty, he was only three and a half pounds when he was born.
3: Wow.
1: Now and he was born in a farmhouse, probably 60 miles from the nearest hospital. Maybe not quite that far, 40. But nonetheless, he was born in a farmhouse. My grandmother gave birth to him in the farmhouse and he was premature. And they kept him warm by putting him in a a dresser drawer filled with blankets with a heat lamp. That's how they kept him alive and nurtured him. And I, I, it's amazing. Back in 1930, you know, having that happen in a farmhouse without any medical attention, that he was that he even survived. To be honest, but he did. But by the time he was in his 20s, now around 1959 or 1960, he hit, when he was born prematurely, he, his spine had not fully developed. So there was essentially a, a hole, if you will, or pocket at the very top of his spine that had not completely fused or completed its growth cycle before he was born. And over the years, cerebral fluid from his brain would leak into the spine and would kind of build up in that that pocket or that hole in his spine. And over the years, it became um, significant enough that it was putting pressure on certain nerves and he was having these excruciating, debilitating headaches as a result, which is why he went in for the brain surgery. Now. Prior to that morning, when they took him to the hospital, my dad was a very physical guy. Even at five years old or whatever I was, my dad would take me pheasant hunting with him and my uncles and my cousins. I didn't get to do it. I just got to walk along, you know, and mm-hmm. be a part of the group to the, to the best of my ability. But he always brought me with him. It took me fishing. He was a very physical, you know, growing up on a farm, he loved to fish. He loved to hunt. He, he was just a physical guy. He loved to work with his hands. He built the house we lived in. He built the house we lived in um, with his own two hands, and, and along with a friend of his. That's, that was my dad. Well, when my dad came back from the hospital, he no longer had use of his arms or his hands. That was a pretty traumatic thing. Now, I'm five or six years old. I don't know what's going on. My dad's home. I don't realize that he can't use his hands any longer. I don't realize how emasculated he felt. Because this is the '60s. This was back when you don't let your wife go to work. What kind of husband are you if your wife has to work? She stays home. She takes care of the kids. She does the cooking and the cleaning. That was it. It was Ozzie and Harriet, man. It was leave it to Beaver. You know, it wasn't. You know, two career households.
2: Right.
1: If you had a wife that had to work, you were looked down upon. You know, so my dad could no longer brush his own teeth. He couldn't comb his own hair. Forget about building anything, going hunting and fishing. That's off the table. He couldn't put on a pair of socks by himself. And what I didn't realize, and unfortunately, this is the one thing I, I don't regret much of my life. I don't regret much. There's things I would do differently, mm-hmm. but I, I can't allow myself to regret anything really, because I wouldn't be where I am today if I did. And I, and I, I look at things that were negative in my life at any point in time as a growth opportunity or an experience, you know, and I grew from it. But with my dad and my mom, as a young kid, you don't realize, don't realize psychologically what that does to a person. Someone like my dad in the 60s, who was totally dependent upon my mom and his mother, because my grandmother moved in with us to help. Masculating. And my dad became bitter and angry. He tried his best. He really did. And he did a lot of great things as a dad. But there were a lot of things that weren't so great. And there was, I don't want to call it abuse. It was never physical. Well, yeah, it was, but not in the way people think. Um, and I was angry. I couldn't wait to get out of the house. Couldn't wait to make my own money. I started working when I was eight or nine years old. Hmm. Odd jobs in the neighborhood. Always had a paper route. When I got old enough to drive a car, I always had a job um, because I couldn't wait to be independent of my mother and father because I was kind of miserable because they were miserable as a result of what my dad had to go through. My dad was horrible to my mom. He didn't mean to be. He didn't even know he was, but he was horrible to my mom because he took a lot of his frustration out on me, but a lot of it on her because I was the oldest, right? Yeah. And he took a lot of it out on her. And I saw that. I saw the mental abuse, the emotional abuse. Um, And I experienced it myself. Uh, Nothing I could ever do was ever good enough for my dad, ever good enough for my dad. And that was his frustration in him, not in me. But I didn't know that till, you know, I'm in my 50s and I go, God, now I get why dad was the way he was. And And I really appreciate my mother more than I ever did when she was alive. Because now, as I look back and I have my own kids and they're adults, I look back and I think, man, my mom was like a fucking hero. And my dad was too in his own way because he tried. He provided, you know, even though he was paralyzed, he didn't have a college education. He grew up on a farm. Uh, But he... He I don't want to say excelled, but you know, he died when he died at 70 years old, he was an executive at a in a pretty big, you know, company and had carved out a niche for himself despite oh, by the way, he was blind in one eye too. <laughs> <laughs> despite, you know, all the things that were going against him, you know, he provided a great life for my my mom and me and my brother and sister. Yeah. That that, uh, but but like you, brother. I don't mean to interrupt you. But like you, you know, when you look at your dad and what happened to your dad, as kind of your inspiration, I look at what my mom and dad went through as an inspiration too. You know, because first and foremost, they loved their kids and they took care of their kids, and family was number one. Yeah, and that that to me is has probably shaped my life as much as anything. Yeah.
2: I I I almost got choked up there because you talking about that made me think back because you know my childhood was when my dad was active in his addiction and about my mom just really holding it together. Granted, my dad didn't even finish high school, lived on his own by fourteen, it was incredibly uh, hardworking. I mean, became a millionaire at one point, and uh, you know all these things. It's um, thank you for that vulnerability on that that uh, brought me some comfort. If if that sounds a little odd. You know, you were talking about being a parent, but no, you guys are grandparents now.
1: Yeah. You know what a funny story about that? And again, this is just life and or mine, I should say. Not everybody else's. But my you know, Garrett and his wife, they've been wanting to have a baby for quite a while. They worked at it pretty hard, right? It didn't come easy. Let's put it that way. And when we first started, when they first told us, "Oh, you know, we're going to try to have a, a kid," which is not surprising, because my son, I think he was born to be a father. I, I really do. Um, so it didn't surprise me, but I remember thinking to myself, "Gosh, I hope, I hope I feel the same way about being a grandparent as everybody else that I talk to." Like everybody would say to me. Oh, wait, wait till you have a grandkid. It's going to change your life. It's going to, you think having kids was fun. Wait till you have a grandchild. And I, I would always go, I don't know, maybe, or maybe not, because I had so much fun being a dad. I couldn't imagine having a feeling that was any more powerful than being a dad. So, when people would say, oh, yeah, that's great, but it's going to get better, I would go, uh oh, I don't know. Maybe for you, but I don't know. And I, deep down inside, I always had this kind of fear. It's like, well, what if I don't feel that same way? What if I'm, like, cool with it, but I don't have that overwhelming sense of gratitude and, and joy that I hear so many people talking about? Mm-hmm. I just didn't see it for me until… <laughs> Waylon was born and I saw him and if I think about it I'll start crying like a bitch it's just and I went okay I get it <laughs> mm-hmm, I love it's it. true and it's not that it's better than being a parent but it's so much different it, it has all of the benefits in, in terms of joy, but the added value for me is not only do I have the joy of watching this little creature evolve, and he's evolving. We were there you know, over Christmas break, and it's like, he's got his own personality now, he's got his own sense of humor now. I mean, he's just an amazing kid. And to be able to watch that happen before your eyes is just so cool but seeing the joy that my son and his wife are experiencing is what elevates this experience from having kids. Because now I'm watching my kids experience the joy of having a child, which I never contemplated. I didn't think about that part. I didn't realize how important that would be or how much impact that would have on me so it's it's pretty cool
2: uh eric uh, before we get to some random questions and i uh give you the floor for some final thoughts um please the new book uh grateful um how can people get it uh 83 weeks strictly business ad free shows whatever you want to let people know about please
1: yeah just uh it's it's available on amazon you know go to amazon.com you know slash eric bischoff and it'll come up or you can go to bischoffbook.com, which will take you to Amazon. Uh, it's available. Uh, the book was a fun experience, man. Guy did a great job. You know, Guy listened to the podcast, and you know, Guy was the one that approached me and said, Hey, you know, I listen to your podcast, and I hear some of the things you're saying, and I know you're just talking about wrestling, but I hear some of the other stuff you're talking about. And he said, I think you've got a story to tell or something to offer. And I was not resistant at first. I just didn't see it. You know, I didn't see what he saw. But as we talked through it, I went, okay, that that would be kind of cool because it's different and it's a part of my life or part of me that I don't typically share. You know, I'm usually just talking about wrestling bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I thought, well, this will be be a fun experience. And it really was. It was cathartic in some respects and it it was a lot of fun and I enjoyed doing it. But the book is out there and it's not a self-help book. I'm not trying to convince anybody I know how to make them better. It's really just my experience. And if there's anything in my experience that makes people go, "Hmm, yeah, I get that, and makes them think, that's my goal. Just think, man. If you read this book and it makes you think a little differently about something, then that's a good thing. Yeah.
2: I'm looking forward to reading it, and I'm also looking forward you guys did something that i I don't know of any other book that's done it. at the end of each chapter, there's a QR code for supplemental uh, multimedia material that 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 coincides with it. I thought that that was a really brilliant move,
1: yeah, I, and I'd like to take credit for that, but it would be um <laughs> it would be a lie. Um, uh, I have a friend who is a writer and he's a professor in California. Uh, his name is Brad Baluchian b-a-l-u-k-j-i-a-n i'm looking at a a document i have (laughs) on my computer from brad is a a writer professor uh, in in california college professor uh but he's you know he's a big baseball fan and he wrote a book called the wax pack Hmm. where he went off on this journey because of a breakup in his life and heartbroken and frustrated and whatever, and just decided I'm going to go on a road trip and I'm going to go find all of the people that is in this deck of baseball cards I bought when I was a kid. And he proceeded to go on this road trip and he found some of these folks and he interviewed them and he wrote a book about that experience. Wow! And he had an idea for a book that he's currently writing called the six pack, which is essentially the same thing, but it's, but it's about a lot of professional wrestlers who were all involved uh, at Madison Square Garden, the night that I think Hulk Hogan beat Andre the Giant or something like that. It was a big moment in wrestling. So he went on a road trip and sat down and interviewed all these guys last year. Um, and through that process, because Brad wanted to interview me and, and solicit a, hel- a little bit of help on my end. And um, we got to talking, and I told him I was writing a book. And he says, Man, because I, like, I got this idea. Because I can't do it with my book because he's going through a traditional publisher. We're self-publishing through Amazon, so we can do whatever we want. And his publisher wasn't interested in it. But I said, what's your idea? And he goes, well, I want to do a QR code. And that QR code will take you to an in-depth interview with whoever was the subject of that chapter. I went, ooh, wait a minute. I could do that in my book. So I asked him, I said, Brad, do you mind if I steal your idea? He goes, no, please do it. See how it works. So it was not my idea, but I am, I've gained the benefit of being the first book that has ever been published that has ever used QR codes for supplemental bonus video content to support each chapter. Now, other people have used QR codes for technical information or to go to a website so you can, you know, look at a schematic of something, but nobody's ever used it to provide video content with the subject of a book. And I think it's very cool. You know, Amanda, we talked, you know, it's our common denominator here. Amanda did just, you know, I watched it and I started crying. I'm a, you can't tell I'm a fairly emotional person (laughs) uh, when it's real, you know? She's, she's an amazing person, but there's a lot, you know, Lex Luger's in there and, and tells his story about he and I and how we found each other again after, after wrestling, after you know, Elizabeth Hewitt, Miss Elizabeth yeah. literally died in his arms of a drug overdose, and my resentment towards him because of that. And just one day I woke up and went, you know, I got to call Lex Luger. And I've never been friends with Lex. Hmm. I, I mean, we worked together and yeah. did everything against him, but we never hung out, never talked on the phone, never had dinner, never went out for a beer, anything like that. All the time we worked together. Just one day, after years of despising him and resenting him and blaming him, which wasn't all his fault, but you know, one day I just woke up and said, I got to call Lex Luger. I just have to. And I did. And it was a turning point for me because it taught me about forgiveness and it taught me about being judgmental. It's really easy for me, especially to be judgmental. I think it's for all of us. That's why Twitter is such a cesspool. Oh, yeah. I mean, everything. We're all, our culture has become so judgmental.
2: Yeah.
1: And, you know, I, after talking to, to Lex on the phone the first time, I was like, you know, I mean, I'm a Christian. You know, I, I mean, I don't go to church every Sunday, and I'm not, not what most people would consider to be a highly spiritual person, but I think I am in my way. My church is the mountains, and going for a hike with my dog. That's when I talk to God is when I'm outside. But I that conversation with Lex, I, I just you know, judge not lest you be judged. Well, how can you profess to be a Christian and have that faith and at the same time judge people? And when when I hung up the phone I, that's the first thought that popped through my head was judge not lest you be judged. I went, "Man, you spend a lot of time judging people." Mhm. I did. And I, well, well that's that's fucked up. You know, that's not the right thing. And I you know, just because I try and I'm I'm not that great at it. I'm working on that. It's a day-to-day process for me because my my go-to is to be judgmental and defensive and in in certain situations. But then you start thinking about, well, how can I do that and profess to be a Christian? You know, and then start looking at yourself and other Stupid shit I've done, and <laughs> right? man, I don't. I, I want to get out of this frame of mind because uh-huh. this is not right. You know, it's, uh-huh. it's just not. So it, would but it's all in the book, man. And you'll hear it from Lex Luger. You'll hear it from me. You'll read it. it it's pretty cool.
2: Yeah, I'm glad that uh, you've unloaded that baggage. Shit's too heavy to carry, man.
1: Well, that's the other thing too. You know, and, and even you know, you talked before about how do you deal with all the negativity and people do that. And it's that too, you know, that's just baggage. If I allow that stuff to live inside of my head uh, or if I carry it around, now I'll still react to it. You know, if somebody says something that is, I know is knowing that I know is false or whatever, I'll, I'll, I'll clarify, you know, for the record. But once I do, it's gone. Yeah. I don't think about it. I don't go to bed at night thinking about it. Why did that person say that? I don't give a fuck. But I've quit worrying about that. So, cause you, you do, whether you realize it, whether I realized it or not, I shouldn't say you, for me, I realized that carrying resentment, like I had with Lex, that was a big one, but there's a lot of little ones you just collect throughout the course of a day. You don't even know you're packing it into your bag. Yeah. You are though, subconsciously, or sometimes consciously, you're just packing that resentment into a bag. And before you know it, that bag weighs more than you do. <laughs> oh yeah it's not doing you any good it's slowing you down big time oh no hey i
2: to, to silence that bullshit you know i would crawl into a 30 pack with so, oh you know that was my character defect i know exactly what you're talking about eric uh for those listening or watching um all the links for for eric's book his website social media are there in the podcast description. So go ahead and click that. Give give Eric a follow. Um because you dropped some other stuff that's not wrestling that I absolutely love, especially your personal Instagram. Seeing you with your family, it's like I'm I'm a softy with that stuff. So uh all right, here we go. Uh some random questions for you.
1: Uh pet peeves. Shit that just irks you on a daily. People being late. Mm. My, my pet peeve, you know, if if someone sets a meeting with me and I make the effort to be on time. And by the way, almost always will be early. As I was five minutes late for this interview, so there's that. <laughs> but you didn't get the email link, right? We I couldn't <laughs> find the link. I, you probably sent it, but I couldn't find it. Uh, um, but, you know, if, uh, I respect people's time. That's an easy thing to disrespect, right? Yeah. I used to have a business partner that would intentionally show up five or ten minutes late for every meeting. To give the perception that he was a very busy person, hmm. it used to drive me batshit because I look at it the opposite. Like if I if I set a meeting with someone, if I'm discussing business or I have a presentation I want to make or something, and somebody else arranges their day so that they're available, and somebody shows up. 10 or 15 minutes late, you've essentially told everybody in that room that you're way more important than they are yeah. very disrespectful. At least that's the way I view it. Yeah. And because of that, I tend to be always early. So when people are late, it's just, eh. <laughs> eh. <laughs> it's uh,
2: uh, if you could have a uh, dinner with any one person living or not, who would they be?
1: You know, what's ironic about that one. Is hmm. I've already had dinner with him, but I want to do it again. Uh, I spent a fair amount of time, four or five days, with Muhammad Ali, hmm. and my I'm so disappointed in myself for not making better use of that time. I was kind of in awe. I've always been a. He's always been, you know larger than life to me. I grew up listening to my first experience to Muhammad Ali was before he became Muhammad Ali and it was Cassius Clay and my dad and I sitting in the living room in Detroit um, sometime in the early sixties, mid '60s, early sixties, listening to the, to the fight when Cassius Clay beat Sonny Mm Liston. And had always been a, a fan of Muhammad Ali growing up. And then to have the opportunity to travel to Pyongyang, North Korea, of all places, um, with Muhammad Ali and sit next to him on the flight from Tokyo to Pyongyang and to spend time with him over there and get to know him on a personal basis was, a, it's, it's my greatest, when I think about my career and what made, what am I, what's the one moment that I'm, I wouldn't trade for anything? And it was that and i and now learning more about muhammad ali because i continue to read about him and and see old interviews I, I i'd love to sit down with him one more time and i will somewhere down the line but wow. uh yeah muhammad ali yeah uh, gentleman, this
2: a gentleman that's become a friend of mine darren prince he uh managed ali for signings and stuff near the end of his life and um I mean just geez the, the affection he would speak for him would bring him to tears every time.
1: Um, yeah, I know I know Darren real well. In okay. fact, I introduced Darren to uh to Tim. Oh, okay. It's I'm such the one a that connected small world, those, those two. right? Yeah. Such a small world.
2: Um I got two people that I want I would like you to uh maybe share something that is not uh that is misunderstood about them. One of them is Hulk Hogan, and the other one is a gentleman I'd love to speak with if he has the time, Conrad Thompson. What's two things, something about those gentlemen through your friendships with them that people may not understand?
1: Well, especially with Hulk, there's a lot, but I, I think Hulk is one of the kindest, most generous, I'm not just talking about with money, that too, but generous with his time, generous with his attention. He's one of the most generous people I've ever met and you know the rap on Hulk Hogan in the wrestling industry is that he's self-serving and selfish and there's nothing more opposite of who Terry Bollea is now in the business of professional wrestling if you're not protective of your character if you don't mind your own business and put your character in your business as the most important thing in any discussion, there are a world of sharks that are willing to take it away from you to to benefit themselves. So, yeah, business wise, you know, the character Hulk Hogan, the man Terry Bollea, could be tough to do business with from time to time. But the person Terry Bollea is one of the kindest, most gentle people I've ever met. I don't think he. I don't think he'd step on a fly. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's just he's just a gentle person and a, and a kind and generous one. Yeah. Conrad, he, you know, Conrad doesn't have the kind of reputation that Hulk Hogan has. I'm sure. But what people don't know about Conrad is how special of a human being he is. And I didn't, you know, my first meeting with Conrad Thompson did not go well. <laughs> Okay. We talked about it in the the book, right? Okay. Not gonna give it away here. It was anything but an ideal meeting Uh. for either one of us. Um and what I learned about Conrad is he's he is a magnet. He's a magnet for really good people. If you look at the team that surrounds Conrad on a day-to-day basis, which he is the nucleus. He's like a planet that attracts really positive people and good people, really good people. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people quite understand, a little bit like Hulk Hogan, just how generous conrad is with his spirit and with his support and just his sheer nature is is positive so if you if you happen to be around him if you're a halfway decent person you're going to walk up being a better than a halfway decent person because of him not a lot of people like that
2: yeah uh one last uh Question before I leave you with the final thoughts. If you could have one superpower, what would it be and why? Mm,
1: superpower. I don't know. I used to think it would be, I wanted to read into the future, but I don't anymore. You know, I don't care about the, well, I care about the future, but I don't dwell on, it, I don't think about, it, I don't worry about it. I worry about today, you know, and, and I have certain concerns about the future, but I, I wouldn't want to be able to predict it because I think that would be horrible to know you know uh superpower i don't know i don't know i I can't even answer that one
2: well i I guess i don't want one here's my recommendation being that you do travel a lot for the you know live shows and everything else that you do uh i would totally take that flight thing and say "Fuck you tsa i'm not dealing with you anymore
1: (laughs) oh no having a now having a private plane isn't a superpower oh i meant you personally be able to fly just like superman hitch everything up and fly. oh okay well i know when he said fly because i actually i used to have my own plane and i I was a pilot i had my instrument rating and i'd fly myself all over the country and so i thought that's what you're referring to but oh no man if i could like just you know throw on a cape and jump off my deck and find myself in you know new york or la or chicago and not have to deal with shit yeah that'd be great <laughs> yeah
2: uh eric thank you so much for this uh i i will share it here with everyone i have not pursued uh, to speak with someone since i started this podcast longer so this is uh one of those vision board <laughs> things so sorry about that <laughs> no no it's, it's it's not your fault it's just part of how it goes you're, you're a bi- busy man and it's uh just weird how how life came to uh together through through mutual friends um if there's anything you would want to lend to people, be it from your own personal experience and how you've seen, you know, how you've had to persevere, you know, everyone's facing something. What what might you lend?
1: I think the one thing I've learned, and that's the one of the reasons I wrote the book, Grateful, is, you know, you got to start somewhere. I had to start somewhere. Again, I'm not trying to convince people to change their lives. But for me, you know, to get out of to quit being judgmental, to quit worrying about the future, to quit doing all the things that I think were really holding me back, I had to literally learn how to be grateful. And by that, I mean, everybody's grateful for something that's big and obvious, right? But it's not the big and obvious things that matter all the time. It's learning how to get up in the morning and go, wow, I'm, I'm healthy. How many people do I know that aren't? I'm perfectly healthy. There's nothing wrong with me. Every joint in my, my body works as well as it did 20 or 25 years ago. I have no aches. I have no pains. I have no conditions. I'm perfectly healthy, and I'm fairly reasonably intelligent. I can do anything because I'm healthy. And Being grateful for your health, I think, is what started me. And then, wow, it's a beautiful day. look at that sunrise. That sunrise is never going to happen again. It's never going to look exactly the way that it looks right now. And it's beautiful. And I'm grateful to be able to sit here and enjoy it. You know, and when you start learning, when I started learning, when I started learning how to become grateful for the little things, it's like all the negative shit just disappeared and it just evaporated. All the garbage that I carried around in my head, and the resentment, and the anger, and the frustration, and the weird, and the fear, the blah, 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 all that shit just started. It's like somebody took a valve in the back of my head, and just let it out. Just, and okay. The more I'm grateful, the better I feel. The better I feel, the more I'm grateful. The more I'm grateful, the better I feel. Damn. So be grateful for the little shit and build on it.
2: This is the Knockin' Doors Down podcast, featuring celebrities, experts, and everyday people who have overcome adversities, including addiction, mental health, and trauma, to live purposeful lives. And that's what Knockin' Doors Down is all about.
3: While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. Privacy is of the utmost importance to us. For those wishing anonymity, people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests. This website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with their content establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page. This podcast is owned by KDD Media Company.